I on? I'm on. Hey. <clears throat> I was joking with some people earlier before the service today. I've never had one of these like head mic things on, and I feel like I'm in a boy band right now. Like it just early 90s, early 2000s, preparing for my benediction dance sequence. Um, my name is Adam. I'm one of the, one of the deacons here, and uh, we are in season one, episode two of Advent. And uh, whereas Josh spoke about hope last week, today we're talking about how Jesus is our Advent peace. Peace is a really broad term, so if you take anything away from today, remember this, that when it comes to peace, it all points to Jesus, and so let's keep pointing. If you want to throw the sermon outline up on the screen. There's going to be three points today. What isn't peace, the foreshadowing of peace, and the advent of peace. Now, under each of these sections, I've included the verses that I'll be referencing during the sermon. Um, I'm not copying and pasting every single verse and all the words from all the verses on the screen. This is how you get group participation points with God during the sermon. Okay, so follow along, open up your Bibles, Google it, use your app, whatever you need to do. Uh, the verses will be on the screen for each of these three sections. So let's start with what isn't peace. Peace, it's a pretty lofty, like universal term used in all types of settings. For example, it's, it's, the, it's the goal, the aim of every beauty pageant contestant that comes across the stage, right? They say, I want world peace, you know. When, some, when somebody dies, we say, R.I.P., may they rest in peace. Um, there's even like a somewhat universal hand gesture for it. If you're cool, you go like this. If you're not cool, you go like that. I hear some ooze, like as if it's like somebody took offense to that. Um, there's time to change. NBA player Ron Artest um, changed his name to Meta World Peace in the early, I think in like the early 2000s, um, which is a little bit ironic if you know anything about uh, player Ron Artest. There's peace lilies, inner peace, peace with God, peace pipes, peace core, passing of the peace, peace out, and my, and my personal favorite, Reese's Pieces. <laughs> it seems everywhere, it seems peace is everywhere and paradoxically nowhere at the same time. But what is it exactly? I, I think we know it when we experience it, um, but perhaps even more acutely in the absence of it. Think about it kind of like your elbow, like nobody goes around talking about how good their elbow feels, unless you would think they had some sort of context for it not feeling good. So and if they were talking about their elbow just for no random reason, something might actually be wrong with them. So we're going to categorize peace and kind of focus on what it isn't in three, with three different types. First, uh, peace within ourselves or inner peace, peace with others, and peace with God. Um, if it helps you to remember these three different categories, think of inner outer and upper, um, but we're not talking about belly buttons. So let's start with inner peace. Um, perhaps very acutely, we see the lack of this in Paul in Romans 7. This is verses 15 through 25. It says, For I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. 
Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Now, thankfully, we also have verse 25, which says, Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, it just kind of seems like Paul's just kind of having a bad day. Um, if you weren't confused before, kind of felt a little lack of peace, you might certainly be now after reading that verse. My intent is not to unpack all that. Um, today, there's a lot there. Other than to say Paul's kind of having, there's something going on inside Paul. And I think that's pretty universal with us as well. Apart from this example, we have many other areas where we lack peace. For example, when there's a difficult decision to make and perhaps the answer isn't clear-cut and the stakes are high. Should I take this or that job? Where should our kids go to school? How much should we be saving, spending, or giving? Should we wait or forge ahead? What do we do with life's forks in the road when there isn't a clear answer? And it's, it's just, it's, it's hard, it's hard. Um, we can agonize over just having a snippet of a sense of peace before making a big decision. What is the right way? Is there only one right way? Does it even matter? We think if we only knew the answer now, once this is over, once I'm out of school, once I'm married, once I have kids, once they're out of diapers, once they're out of the house, once I get this job, once I retire, then we think, I'll have peace. And then, of course, the next thing comes around. So I guess one question for us to think about is, what are you going to for peace? Our lack of inner peace obviously also affects our peace with others, or outer peace. For example, if you've ever been under a lot of stress, and someone just thinks they're coming alongside you and they're really helping you out, and they just tell you to relax or chill, or it's not that big of a deal, and all you wanted them to do is just to validate your feelings, just give you a hug. But in those situations, it just sends you through the roof. It just sends you through the roof in anger, and you snap back at them. Perhaps you say something mean or snarky or passive-aggressive. You give them a look that could, like, melt steel, right? And then maybe you give them the silent treatment afterwards. Well, that's biblical, but not in a good way. James 4, 1 through 3 says this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, and so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Our relationships are broken, and we yearn for peace. Late nights, early mornings, hard conversations of the course of days, weeks, maybe months and years. And we're winning these imaginary arguments that we have in the shower or in the commute, when you put your head down at night on the pillow, you know, wherever you, have, wherever you win your arguments, no judgment here, against someone that we believe is in the wrong. Um, and I certainly don't need to spend too much time convincing anyone of the lack of peace in our world. If we just watch the news, we can see up close with firsthand footage of a lack of peace in our own backyard and across the world. 
I think the news cycle, cycle is appropriately termed. It feeds us the next crisis before we've had a chance to actually digest the previous one. And it builds up within ourselves and with others, and it causes all kinds of indigestion, perhaps both figuratively and literally. Who are you not at peace with? And I would argue that this lack of inner peace and this peace with others is rooted in our lack of peace with God. Let's turn to Genesis 3. It says, Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and this is what ensues. This is what God is saying. This is Genesis 3, 16 and 19. It says, To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. At the fall of man in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and it separated them from God and from each other, and the world was in chaos. We see suffering, toil, and the lack of peace ensues. God then banishes them from the garden, and we've been trying to get back ever since. So far, we looked then at like three different types of peace, right? Inner peace, outer peace, and, and, and upper peace. Peace with God, peace with others, peace within ourselves. But we look more at it from, from our experience of the lack of it. Um, so how do we actually find this peace? How do we actually deal with this lack of peace? Ever since the fall, we've been longing for it. I appreciated the songs that the Pharisees chose, or whoever chose those, those songs. It was great, great songs, by the way. We're yearning for it. All, all the earth is yearning for it. We've been yearning for it, and this is what the anticipation, this is what Advent of the greater peace is all about. So we're going to look at three different offices or functions or roles kind of established throughout the Old Testament by God to establish peace. We're going to see this building and recurring theme throughout all of Scripture, anticipating a day when we will all be at peace with God and through it have this inner peace within ourselves and with others. Uh, these three offices or roles or functions were always uh, imperfect and temporary when uh, occupied by sinful men, but they are all foreshadowing something or someone, spoiler alert, greater to come. The three foreshadowing offices are the offices of the prophets, the office of the priests, and the office of the kings. So let's start with the foreshadowing of the office of the prophets. Now the prophets, they served as God's ambassadors and representatives to communicate, to communicate God's word to his people. They rebuked sin, they proclaimed judgment and comfort, and they interpreted events. They pointed the people back to God and proclaimed God's word, the way of peace. Examples of this, they're all over. Um, just pick a handful, right? Abraham, Moses, Isaiah, Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, Jeremiah, and Daniel, lots more. Um, but, and their stories around, they're always like, there's really dramatic stories of them pointing the way to God. But they also prophesied future events. And in Isaiah 61, the Israelites 
were suffering under Babylonian exile. In Isaiah 61, verse 1, we read, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Now, put a pin in that verse. We're going to come back to that. Somebody else mentions that verse in the New Testament. In this, there is a prophecy, pretty bold proclamation that yields an anticipation and a foreshadowing of absolute peace, favor, and justice. Let's now look then at the office of the priests. Now, the priests had access to God. They were able to enter into his presence and mediate between God and men, interceding for the sins of themselves and for the sins of the people through the sacrificial system. Okay? They had to be holy in their conduct and without defect. If you want an interesting read, um, go through back the whole book of Leviticus and Exodus, and um, you can read about the sacrificial system okay? uh, that, that was set up about 1,400 years before Christ. But through, if we kind of did like a quick review of that, if we look through the Old Testament, we see multiple people offering sacrifices to God from Cain and Abel, to Abraham and Isaac, and Job. And then in Exodus, it highlights this idea of a necessary blood substitution to escape judgment. We see this with the sacrifice of the lamb when its blood was spread over the doorposts um, during what's now called as the Passover. And that ultimately delivered the Israelites out from under Egyptian rule. Leviticus then kind of builds on this and it builds this theme around the purpose of the sacrificial system because it emphasizes atonement for sins and forgiveness. Now, if you read through here, all of these kind of sacrifices seem to have this kind of common phrase around them. Not every time, but lots of times it says it was a pleasing aroma to God and enabled this peace between God and man. It was bridging this gap. But despite this recurring theme of substitutionary sacrifice throughout the Old Testament, we also see these hints of imperfection and incompleteness of the sacrificial system highlighted in other portions, like as in Hosea 6, 6, where it says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than of burnt offerings. Even though the office of the priest and the sacrificial system were established by God, and it's this kind of, again, recurring and building and foreshadowing theme throughout the Old Testament, when occupied by sinful men, there still seems to be something a little bit off, right? So let's now turn to the office or the role of the kings throughout the Old Testament. Well, they were established by God throughout the Old Testament to have authority over those whom they had been granted, to fight off evil, to rule justly, and to establish peace. There are many kings throughout the Old Testament. In fact, there's a couple books written about it, right? Adam, Joseph, Moses, David, Solomon are just a few examples. But let's return to Genesis, where we see that God established Adam to rule over creation. That is, he is a type of king. But in his kingly role, Adam fails. And in Genesis 3.15, God declares enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. But 
He doesn't just leave us hanging. He also offers a future promise of complete victory coming from the seed of the man. And about this seed of the serpent, he says, he's going to crush your head and you will strike his heel. From that time on, from Genesis on, we see this recurring theme throughout the Old Testament with these foreshadowings, these, these really big promises of a future king who will govern over his people, rule justly, defeat evil, and establish ultimate peace. One example of this is in Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. The title of it is The Coming of Zion's King. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you riding, right righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Some pretty big claims. So we started by describing what peace wasn't and our experience of the lack of it. And then we spent the last little bit here uh, talking about how ever since the fall, there's been these kind of like building and recurring themes or offices that were instituted by God, and they all seem to be foreshadowing something, pointing to something bigger than themselves. So what are they pointing to? And we still haven't answered the question what peace actually is or, or how to get it. Well, let's now return to the scripture reading for today. Um, Jesus' words to his disciples in John 16, 33. In John 16, 33, Jesus is speaking to his disciples right before his betrayal, suffering, and death. And he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Well, if he's saying he's told them these things so that they may have peace, what are those things? Well, those things are basically who he is and what he came to do. Earlier in chapter 16, he tells them about how he came from God and his divinity. He's a king. How he came into this world to point people back to God as a prophet and about his impending death on the cross, a priest. The offices of the prophet, priest, and king they're all there. In other words, he could have said something like this. I am the ultimate prophet who didn't just point to God, who didn't just point to God's word. I am God's word incarnate, and I've dwelt among you. I am Emmanuel. And just as Isaiah prophesied 700 years earlier, we come to Luke 4, 16 to 21, which, which reads, he, Jesus, went up to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and on the scroll, the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and sat down. And he the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And that's the story of how the first mic drop came to be. 
in Jesus, our Emmanuel. He isn't just pointing the way to God as God's ambassador or just another prophet. He is God. He's pointing to himself, and in him, everything is fulfilled. Regarding the priest, he could have said something like this. I'm the ultimate priest who, unlike the high priest who sacrifices, were always imperfect, partial, and temporary. I'm perfect. I am perfect. And I am going to the cross willingly. Nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And by doing so, we'll satisfy God's wrath once and for all. Redeeming all those who believe. In Hebrews 9, we read, but he, was, he appeared once and for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Unlike the sacrificial system, Christ's sacrifice was perfect, permanent, and provided total redemption. Later, Paul would write, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. That's 1 Timothy 2, 5-6. Regarding being the ultimate king, he could have said something like this, I am the ultimate king. Where the first Adam disobeyed regarding the tree, and failed to protect his bride, I've obeyed perfectly and will be crucified on a tree to redeem my bride and will reign forever justly, defeating, defeating Satan, sin, and death. And fulfilling the prophecy we read earlier in Zechariah 9, earlier in John 12, we see Jesus entering Jerusalem for what is known as his triumphal entry. And he's riding low, he's riding low on a donkey, not to overthrow the government in the way that anyone thought, but preparing for his crucifixion and through it to ultimately rule and reign for eternity. So again we ask, what is peace? Peace is personified in Jesus. It's who he is, it's what he did, it's what he offers us all right now. Peace with God, and through it, peace with ourselves, and peace with others. So how do we get it? Well, it's the second part of this passage. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I've overcome the world. Notice that there is going to be trouble and that we take heart because he has overcome. Peace is not the absence of our pain. It is the presence of our Savior. Think about this. In the midst of all the disciples' anxiety, confusion, fear, and inner turmoil, and amidst Jesus Christ's own suffering and betrayal to the cross, he was performing the single greatest act in human history, even though nobody understood it or felt it at the time. This is not a go and pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and try harder to have peace type of theology. It doesn't work, and willpower will run out so fast. Just as those different offices were all imperfect when they were occupied by sinful men to establish peace, so we too are not able to achieve peace on our own. No amount of doing churchy stuff, trying to be perfect, beating ourselves up over over past sins or trying to control the world around us is ever going to give us peace. We need a Savior, not just an example. He says, take heart because I have overcome the world. Our peace comes from what he has done. 
And now we can rest with peace in him because he's already accomplished everything already. So what does it mean to take heart? It means that we, in light of what he has done, preach these truths to ourselves, and we dare to live it out. To the extent that we take heart, to the extent that these truths become real to us, to the extent that we preach them over and over and over and over and over again to our hearts, as we see throughout all the Psalms and the scriptures, we will have peace. So how are you taking heart in what he has already done? I'd like to invite the uh, worship team back up on stage along with the prayer peeps. Um, if you guys like to come forward. If you're here and would like someone to pray with you, um, there's going to be people up here in the corners of the room to do that. You don't have to have the right words. That's what they're here for. And I'm pretty sure that their hugs are free too, if that's what you're into. Um, as we sing the next couple of songs, I'd like for us to ponder a couple of questions that'll be on the screen. Are you at peace with God, with yourself, and with others? Where are you turning to for peace? And are you taking heart in what he's already done? I'd like to read from Philippians 4 as a pronouncement and prayer over us as we sing the next couple of songs. Would you please stand as we read these words and prepare to worship? Philippians 4, 4 through 9. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. At all points to Jesus, let's keep pointing as we sing. <laughs>